So we just finished the interview, the discussion with Brandon Lamberty. It was good. Well, it, was, it, was, it, 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 it was a great one. I think that, you know, he really brought up some great, great points um, and great angles regarding how the protests and how the movement has really unfolded in a more rural setting in his home, t- uh, home state of Wisconsin and yeah. kind of how it's unfolded uh, in, in Madison, right? Which is, which is a liberal city, but had, uh, has not had a lot of exposure to the, I don't know, how, how would you say? With the, with the protests that have gone on there and, and there's been maybe not as much looting as other cities, but there was an excess amount of looting. It was, um, it was surprising to me. It was surprising to yeah, hear and, and, and police reaction that, you know, we have been seeing on Twitter and other, you know, news outlets and other social media accounts. Um, but, you know, we're not necessarily seeing it from a state like Wisconsin no. for whatever reason. I don't know why, but I've seen I've seen the states yeah. around it. Right. Yeah. You know, I've seen stuff in Chicago and stuff in, in Minnesota, obviously. And, and I've seen some stuff in Michigan as well in Detroit, but I haven't seen anything about Wisconsin. It was very eye opening to hear that, you know, what you hear with with police, um, you know, on uh, attacking seemingly peaceful protesters, right? You know, reporters and the yeah, media. That's, that's a whole other thing we can get into. You know, shot at and tear gas while well, we get into it in this episode. Yeah. He kind of opens my eyes to something that never was really shown off my Twitter feed. He also talks kind of about, uh, oh, yeah, another good thing that I just remember was early in the episode. I know we're kind of going backwards here, but he kind of explained how um, Temple University's, you know, response to uh, one student's, you know, hate speech that he put online wasn't necessarily adequate and he kind of you know got into what he thinks from his political science angle could potentially be done yeah that's another thing that stands out to me is that like we give wisco a lot of shit you know obviously we we um we give him a lot of shit um just to mess with him and all that stuff but you know it's all in good fun um but as much shit as we give him you know he's very smart and he's very good with words um and all that stuff and i think the angle from you know him being a poli sci major and and how he's studying and how it relates to what maybe the university can do better, how we can um, educate ourselves better. I think it was very important in this discussion. Absolutely. All right, we hope you guys enjoy. Welcome back to Apple Picking. This is your host Ziggy. This is Donnie. And with us today, special guest who, due to COVID concerns, he has been focusing his efforts on pushing educational media online, as well as heading the entire Temple Ultimates team initiative. We are happy to have Mr. Brandon Lamberty roll over from his usual cherry picking stints onto apple picking today. Glad to be here. Glad to be here and talk about some more serious stuff. Uh, no, absolutely. I'm not even going to argue that this stuff is is more serious, more relevant. Um, to what we got to be talking about today. So, I know you know why we asked you on. No, but everybody else doesn't know why we asked you on. Right, could you? I don't know why. Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. I mean, that'd be we, we'd have a separate conversation for that one. But yeah. can you explain a little bit, Brandon, why or what you've been able to accomplish and kind of the angle you've been taking with regarding you know this movement um, and these protests since you've not been able to you know, partake in them physically? <laughs> Yeah, I think a lot of what I've done has been leading our Frisbee team's kind of response and this new initiative we're taking up. Um, I think I'm really glad that we were one of the first teams to come out with and like an official statement that was more than just 
like a little graphic like we actually put some like sustenance behind our words and you know I was happy to write that for the team but it wasn't just my thoughts I think it was everyone's thoughts and since we put that out I guess it's almost a week and a half ago um, it feels longer it does it feels yeah like it feels longer um, from there we did some more resource sharing on Twitter um, I've done we led a team discussion I helped lead that pulled together some resources um, helped for Philly Patrol the men's club team I helped write that statement to support them um, and simple question yeah. why, why why did you feel that you know you needed to step up and be you know kind of kind of to head this head this response as well as that, think, that why why you a and and why did you feel like there needed to be a response from these programs in the first place yeah um why me i think our team is made up of a lot of different people but not a lot of people that have spent their like college time studying many of these issues i think we have a lot of really smart people on our team that do engineering and finance and all sorts of things that can help in their own right in this problem but being a poli sci major and going to grad school for public policy uh, i just have a bit more exposure and a bit more refinement in the way i discuss these issues and like talk about them and so i felt a bit more comfortable in certain areas being the voice um, and why i think the team needed it uh like I said in our statement on Twitter, which you can find, um, is that we're a bunch of white guys in a very like non-white neighborhood, and we get a lot of benefit from certain aspects of the neighborhood. Um, and we have a certain, I feel that we have a certain right or like responsibility to give back and do our part. Um, and I think to a certain extent, you know, we've only started it now that it is popular, but I think this was a necessary like nudge that we needed and a way that we can keep it going when it's not as popular. How are you planning to kind of start that, um, that activeness right in the community and kind of more, you know, increasing that awareness from a team sense. And this could, this could be for, for Temple ultimate or for the, the patrol, the club team. How, how are you kind of plan? What, what is, you know, what are you working on? Well, right now, as we speak, uh, we've given over the Twitter account to Nate Little, a friend of ours who is going to be on the podcast, I believe, coming up soon. Um, and we, I reached out to him a couple days ago and I was like, hey, like we have this Twitter with, you know, like 600 followers that I've been using a lot to share resources and some of my thoughts, but we have been gaining followers as well. Due to yeah. Our and you're, you know, you're someone that, has actually lived these experiences and I'd like you to be able to like use this platform. And so he's kind of at that. That's something we're doing in the near term. And then our long-term goal is our youth engagement. Um, we are starting to do, try and do more like clinics and little things with some of the rec centers and some of the schools in North Philly to get them another exposure to like fitness and athletics and, you know, maybe give them Frisbee as an option of a different sport to play. And we, I got in contact with a guy from Dallas who does this for a living with Frisbee. Um, and he gave me some resources. I'm going to be in touch with him some more, um, finding ways to be more effective with this kind of initiative that we're starting. So I know we did something similar last summer. It was, it was kind of a, a one-time thing that we always really strove to do again. We just never really had the time or didn't really have, you know, perhaps the commitment at the time to really 
continue with it uh, through city year. And I know a handful of guys, and I was one of those, uh, was able to make it out that day. So, and, and through that, I know I'm, I'm going to speak just kind of recounting that, you know, we, we went there, it's a handful of us. We, it was kind of like a clinic, kind of just like an after school program where, uh, we, <laughs> we lassoed like three dozen kids on a, a tight gym and, and we made it happen. It was raining outside. So, you know, we were inside, outside, depending on the weather. And, you know, we each had our own little pod of kids and we had a bunch of discs and we ended up giving some to some of the kids. And, you know, we played a game of pickup on the, on the asphalt. We slanted with a couple spills, a couple busted knees. That's okay. It's all in good fun. It's all part of the game. Um, you know, the, the counselors and some of the after school instructors got involved. It was great. I mean, kids were at the point where they were super hesitant to, to join in front or in the beginning, which, you know, could be up to a handful of things. I think a large part of it was the fact that it's something new with, you know, strangers, obviously. And, you know, they're young, they're innocent. I don't know if the fact that, you know, we were, we were just, white you know adults who i don't want to use the word invading their space because i i don't want to, to come across that we were in there because we had to or because we were trying to push our sport onto these people we were kind of or onto these people onto these kids i felt like our role there was to kind of you know not only provide this as another option another you know after school activity for them to do but to connect with the kids themselves right frisbee was the medium to connect with them, right? We could share our passion for the game with these kids, but I feel like at the end of the, end of the day, you know, frisbee was the was the secondary thing, even if that be, that that started out as the primary thing, right? You left there, there was a handful of kids hugging. I don't know, uh, friends who's been on cherry picking. Luke Greenley got a lot of attention that I imagine his girlfriend's pretty jealous of. Um, but he was getting attention from a handful of kids. You know, kids were hugging him, saying like they don't want us to go. And and you know, you could you could extrapolate and think about you know this maybe because they have some at home. Uh, you know, issues and, and they, this is a, a release for them. Cause I know that was a, a reason for after school programs at my you know, elementary school and stuff. But, you know, you could even just take away from that is, you know, they made new friends and they were open to new experiences and we were able to provide that for them. No matter the medium, it just happened to be Frisbee. Right. So what I'm trying to say there is I think this is a step. I hopefully this is a step that not only Temple Ultimate is going to be taking in a time like this, that a lot of other programs ultimate programs which are majority white in places that are not majority white try to take right and they and they try to take and they try to get involved and have more awareness of the community that they're living in right and it, it can be the university as a whole right temple you know is aware they live in a more gentrified area of um a majority black area of the city but i you know that doesn't mean that temple is doing a whole lot to really increase the university's involvement in the community you know and if the university i feel isn't doing a whole lot to really make it known um and and increase awareness and education of the issues in the community i know you only have to take what one gen ed one race and diversity yeah. gen ed and a lot of times that's just kind of thrown to your senior year to just kind of find an easy class to pass it's not really taken very seriously and if that's the only real minimum requirement to you know increase your knowledge about different races and different cultures and stuff excuse me you know is is, is that a do is that enough of is the temple doing enough you know to to get us involved or it just feels like we're kind of in an enclave inside of north philly we're not really aware of what's going on around us we're kind of living in our own little bubble which i feel like is is naive and i feel like it's ignorant to a degree right and if, if the university won't take the steps to you know speak up and take action against discriminating against you know the faces that are in the community and 
you know, by the students, as well as make an effort to, you know, put in courses and actions and, and seminars and, and required things to help students get more involved in the community and more aware of the community, then I think it's on the club, on the programs that are in this community to, you know, t- take up that initiative themselves. Yeah. And I think that that also goes hand in hand. Like I mentioned it before, but um, Temple's statement that they came out with, it just shows that like, like you said, like, you know, they, like, it kind of looked like they were going to make the effort to teach us more about the community or, or help out in our community um, more as, you know, it's a majority minority neighborhood. Um, and then they put out this statement. It's like, yeah, like, okay, like you have to respect their first amendment rights, but like, you're basically just giving them a pass. It's it, like, it just sounds like what you're saying. And I don't think that's acceptable at all. What What is, I don't know if this is a political, I mean, it's political, but I don't know if there's somebody, something that a poli sci major would have more insight on, but you know, when in regards to, in regards to hate speech and in regards to, you know, discriminatory actions where can the university draw the line because it seems like they're drawing the line very far away from these actions they're saying oh, we don't we don't like this we don't agree with this can't do anything about it the student won't receive really any repercussions yes we're doing like an investigation quote unquote but we can't really do anything about this we don't like it i don't make that aware we don't like it we don't condone it but we're not gonna do anything about it uh yeah i i struggled to that because it is this difference between like you can say what you want and you, but you also can't say things that like, you know, make people fearful and like are threatening in any way. So I think they, you know, they've kind of chosen that line of like, if you're going to say something offensive, but it's like not kind of directed at someone or like trying to be like inciting fear, I think that's where they've drawn the line. And I don't agree with that. But I think so I had this conversation with uh, a friend of mine here in Wisconsin with this um, like leadership volunteer organization that I'm in. And the, the group put out this statement and it seemed a little kind of wishy-washy by like the standards that we would assume for like an organization to take. And many of us in the group are more liberal and more progressive. Um, and it just, it felt very kind of generic and very like off-putting. And so I messaged him because I knew he's involved with it and he does a lot of like politics and we have these kind of conversations. And I was like, hey, like, I don't feel super comfortable with this, with this statement. Do you have thoughts on it? And he was like, he was actually involved in kind of putting together a statement. And he basically said that because the group is like the entire, like made up of everyone from all throughout Wisconsin, there's a certain level of like inclusivity that you have to keep that keeps you from like going too far because if you like talk too badly about like police and like these certain ideas where like conservative areas you know feel strongly about then you lose access to those like students that we're trying to bring into our like seminar and then you don't ever get a chance to like inform them about anything if they're too off-put and their schools won't let them be involved and I thought that was really interesting now do I think that's what Temple's doing by kind of allowing more offensive speech so that they can come to the university and hopefully be exposed. I don't think it's exactly the same, but I think there's a certain limit of like, you want to have a diverse student body. And at some level, they're trying to allow for like dissent and differences. But I think they missed the mark with what they did. Yeah, I mean, it felt like Temple statement that they came because it came out with like the, the initial statement that was just uh, like, like we have to respect their First Amendment rights, even though we don't condone what they're saying. 
And then they came out and they said, like, we know that <clears throat> our response has to be more than words. And it kind of felt like what they were like, they were saying these things just because students were yelling at them. Right. And like something that I haven't seen. Correct me if I'm wrong. I haven't seen anything about them. Uh, I've, I haven't seen them say something about the police officer that almost basically split that temple student's head open um, at one of the protests. I don't know if they've said anything on, on that or not, but to come out and say like, I don't know what and say what they've been saying and not say anything on that. I think it's a complete slap face. I don't know if they should be saying something about the kid who was potentially assaulted at the protest. Um, I don't know if that's if it would make sense for them to speak up about that because talking to what Wisco was saying, that would draw a, a pretty strong line and it would really potentially exclude those who are in favor um, of the police and. I, I think I, I just think that's a tough question. Imagine if, if a student, you know, gets arrested for uh, some handful of, of, of unpaid tickets or some minis- like it's not, not not something huge in another state. You know, far, are they going to report on that? Probably not. Right, but this student, like, like this was a like the student was you know defending himself and the cop, like you know, like. I, but with what what could Temple say? You know what I, I don't know what they should. Be saying there. I mean, if I if off the top, what are they going to come say? out and say like we don't we, support what has happened in this video, like whatsoever? Yes, but then you're going to have people saying, you know, oh, well, that's not the whole video. Oh, well, there, you can't actually hear the audio of what what's being said, right? There's always you can't have all the bases covered with with one video, and you're going to have people who are on one side of the equation saying, kid, the, the kid, there's probably a reason that the that the police acted like that. Well, and I think one of the issues that Temple's having is that, like, they rely on the Philly Police Department for a lot of, like, safety, like, services. And, like, we have our own police department through the university, but it's, like, not a fully accredited police department, if I remember what they were saying, like, last year. And, like, they cannot be super, like, self-sufficient with, like, public safety. And so they, like, need the police department to a certain extent. And, like, if you piss off the police too much, especially as like a huge institution, like that can backfire really quickly. And like a lot of it for the university is money. And so if they, you know, they want students to feel safe so that they'll come and spend the money at the university and then they need to give the money to the police to do their job. And it's like a big cycle. And if you piss off the police union, they're going to say, no, we won't keep you safe. And then you know, maybe like the university's police department will stay and help, but they don't have the full like force necessary. And, you know, maybe if they can take the money that they paid the like Philly police department and put that into their own like public safety, then you could see a shift. But I think that's a lot of ifs. That's a lot yeah. Of- yeah. A lot of if and like a lot of time. Right. Because you can't just hire a bunch of people and have them trained ready for August 18th or whatever. I mean, that's, that's what that's campus. what the NYPD is doing. They're really rushing their their recruits there. But, you know, that's NYPD. That's nothing. That is nothing. That's not even as close to as terrifying and potentially yeah. disastrous as the Temple PD is. It's yeah. not, not even close. Um, however, I want to go back to something that you said earlier, Brandon, is that you kind of compared the this potential racial harassment or discriminatory harassment to a response to like sexual harassment like if it's just said out into the open and not directly targeted at somebody then there's no there's no direct receiving party to i don't say interrogate but but take a statement 
from, right? Because if I if I go, you know, on social media and say a lot of derogatory things towards women and, and, be, and act extremely misogynistic and you know, sexually harass women in general, would I get I would get backlash, obviously, but would the university step in? Would there be a Title IX, you know, grievance filed? There couldn't be because I wasn't directing it at somebody. I think that's what I'm getting from this. But if I went up to somebody and said these same things, then there'd be an issue. If uh, this, if the individual who we're not going to give the, the, the time of day in terms of his name said the things he said, you know, on social media to a black individual to their face, that'd be a completely different situation. But the fact he's just saying his opinions, however controversial and ignorant they are, out into the interweb, is that kind of like a we can't we can't really touch that zone. Yeah. Well, and I think the trick is that like so many systems are put in place in universities that we see in all these documentaries and all these reports of like keeping it so that the rich like wealthy white men that go to these universities like don't get in trouble and i think you know the title nine office will file a lot of complaints but if there's no defendant then it's really hard to um or like no accuser there's no real like like uh comparison and it's the same with like the ideal office at the university doing diversity and all this. Like if you don't have a victim, it's really hard to prove it. And I think the university is like it's easier for them to avoid taking serious action if like a specific student wasn't directly involved and can't like make a whole thing about it. Like, yes, the whole like black student body can like show their outrage but no one was like directly involved and so it gives them a lot more cover and i think that's part of the problem is that there's always a way to like hide behind some like shallow fact or some shallow aspect of one of these things that keeps like systems in place i mean that's that's just part of the problem that you know there's there's always ways out for people who have just just spew hate speech there's always there's always ways out there's always a cover for the rest that they that they don't they don't know or they don't think, but there aren't repercussions really for their actions, right? And if you say that, if, if this individual says that to one person, that one person will be, you know, obviously deeply affected and the surrounding community will be angered at this. And that one individual um, that was, you know, uh, affected or targeted rather, will be able to file a grievance, have a case, yada, yada. But this arguably has more hurt for lack of a better one. There, there's there's more fallout from this because he's not going after one student in particular. And he is kind of going after the entire you know, he's going after a demographic. I don't say going after, but he's he's not he's not acknowledging the the plights of an entire demographic. Right. And that's arguably a more severe thing. And if you can't, you know, if there's no repercussions for that, and there's only repercussions for targeting at an individual, then there is no line. Right. And if there is a line, then it is a, a line that, you know, only makes it part of the way around the circle. Yeah. yeah. I think it's I think it's a tough thing for the university, but you've seen, you know, not Temple in specific uh, or particular, but other universities where you have high school students who say these kind of things and they get their acceptances revoked. Right. They get their scholarships um, potentially revoked more, more so the, the, the former. But I've seen that it's more difficult or universities are less willing to do the same thing for a, for a current student. And I would imagine that's because of money. I would imagine that they're, are, they're already paying. It's easy to say no to somebody who hasn't paid, you know, uh, tens of thousands of dollars already. But to somebody who has, I imagine it's kind of hard for them to, to, to say no. Yeah. And I think you, like, if you're a high school senior and 
you know, you can apply and you can get rejected for, you know, no reason really. And you just kind of move on. And so if you get accepted and then they revoke it because of this, like not a lot you can do because the universities are allowed to just accept and deny whoever they want. But once you're paying and you've, you know, agreed to these different things, and I'm sure there's different documents that we sign and, you know, rights that we give up and certain things we agree to that we don't even notice. But you do that. And then if you, the university wants to expel you, there's a whole process that they have to go through and it's going to cost them time and money. And then it turns out that the person that you just expelled has a dad who's a lawyer, a mom who's a lawyer. And now the university is going to court in this high profile case because of this. And there's all this extra stuff going on. And, you know, you, it's so much harder for them to know what they're getting themselves into. So a lot of times they'd rather just avoid it and you know, slap on the wrist or maybe, you know, not let them be in the frat they were in or something simple like that. But, you know, nothing serious because they don't want the extra backlash. It just feels like they're not, they're, they're setting a precedent right now. Yeah. And that precedent is that, yeah, we don't, we don't like it, but we're not going to do anything about it because we don't really want to spend the time and energy to really hope, vet the entire situation. And I feel like that's angering or it is angering a lot of student body. Um, a lot of the student body will probably, you know, is probably angry, but is staying silent, which is, you know, deba- debatably an issue in and of itself. But my question for you, before we switch gears to something a little bit closer to home for you, um, in the most literal sense, is what do you think the the university should be should be doing in general? You know, and, and maybe maybe that's a question you really want to answer, but if you can, it's it's tough because like. A lot of the stuff that I do and like studying for grad school now, it's like we acknowledge that running the day-to-day operations of like a public institution like this, there's so little time for like change and for like introspection because you're just trying to stay afloat and just trying to get things done. And so it's hard for the university to make big changes because there's so many like moving pieces and everyone has a job and they do their job. Um, And so I think what they can do is, you know, you've, they have the ideal office, um, you know, doing diversity work and you have like student government, which are students giving up their time to tackle some of these issues. And you have Title IX office and there are certain pieces of the university that have professionals that do this for like their life's work. And I think you have to lean on them more. And I think you have to make them more visible. And I think you have to give them more of a serious role so that things that they say aren't coming from like their office independent of the university. I think they're saying things on behalf of the university and you don't have the board of trustees and the president's office making these statements when they're full of old rich white men. Um, You know, and we're lucky to have Joanne Epps as the provost who is a very successful black woman and, you know, one of the most successful black women in Philadelphia's history. Um, We're lucky to have her, kind of helping to guide some of this. But I also think that I haven't seen her name and her voice enough throughout this process. And I think, you know, you, to a certain extent, you know, you want the president leading this charge and he's the face of the university. But I think he has to acknowledge that he needs to step aside at certain points and let, you know, uh, Dr. Epps speak. You have to let the ideal office speak. You have to let these other groups speak and let them lead the conversation rather than just adding their input and then letting the president make the decision. I think it's it's changing how you structure leadership and how you structure like decision making, which is kind of where it comes from. It's like no big 
like performative change has to come. It's like serious action within that makes all the difference. Talk to Jay about it, um, Jay Matthews, uh, a couple days ago. Right, as of recording that episode's not out. It will be, um, but as of as of when your episode is released, hers will be out. If that makes sense. We talked to her about something similar to this issue, right? Kind of her response to this, and uh, from Temple Ultimate, or from Temple Ultimate, from Temple University, and she was speaking on, you know, uh, and she was a proponent of including more required courses um or having a potentially required course like a seminar in your first yeah. year that would you know just I, I, don't, I don't remember exactly what she said off the top of the, off the top of the head but it was more like a, a race and diversity seminar yeah that would be you know mandated. i think you could i think you could replace the the freshman seminar that all the freshmen have to take with a race and diversity seminar i don't know if your guys's experience with my with your freshman seminar but mine was pretty pointless um I think a race and diversity seminar would be so much better. I know if they, yeah, make it a credit, two credit, you know, three credit thing, but make it make it required and and, and yeah. kind of make an effort for that course to to get them more involved in the community, right? And and, and expose them to you know the reality of the situation, and don't just try to isolate Temple University as an enclave, right? Because Temple's always said they're striving to work with the community, but when their students don't really have you know, the motivation to, or any, any reasoning to actually involve themselves in the community, then they're not really, Temple University isn't fluid with the community. The university is only fluid with the community if the students are. And if they're not giving their students or they're not having their students, you know, become fluid with the community and giving them options, making them, you know, step out of their comfort zone, then what are they doing? They're just allowing them to stay in the little bubbles. Yeah. Well, and I think one of the like important pieces of considering like more requirements and more education around these issues is that like race and diversity courses, there's a lot of options. And so it allows people to pick which like which aspect of race and diversity interests them most. Like, you know, if you want to focus on the Philadelphia experience or like music or art or just like, you know, race studies in general, or like African studies. Um, I think the, and like the Africology department at Temple is one of the best in the country. And so I think there's a lot of good in there. Um, what I would, what I think would also be interesting is making it like, whether it's major specific or like college specific, because like your CST majors don't want to like read books on books about these issues, because it's like, they're not you know, big into reading long novels and like writing essays, but you may be at a course where they have to learn about equity in their field and learning about like how these issues affect their field. And I think, you know, that's some of that, like you can mix that with professional development, right? Like if I'm hire, like if I'm a hiring manager in my field, what's important to understand, like what experiences are necessary. And I think applying it to each like subset in ways that are important is more valuable because if everyone just reads a, a book about mass incarceration or about police reform, you know, some people are going to take away a lot from it, but others aren't. And most of the times people that are getting most from it are already the ones who are informed and educated and willing to listen, but it's getting the people that are less inclined to listen, getting something that will like relate and connect with them. I think, I think that's interesting. I think that would also, I would involve, you know, the university, putting together some more classes obviously and in, in, in each um in each college which would be an effort in and of itself but i think for a lot a lot of kids i know in, in the race university a couple of classes i was taking um i took one about african-american art and the people that took the course were interested in art for the most part 
right? But there was a handful of those who weren't really interested in art and were just there because it was the only, you know, race and diversity gen that fit their schedule. And they were just doing the bare minimum to pass and graduate. So they weren't really getting anything out of the course. I understand for some gen eds, like that's just kind of the mentality, right? But when you are a school, and Don said is in the majority minority setting, it's kind of, I feel your responsibility as a Temple student, as a North Philadelphia native for four years, um, you know, yes, there are communities, but that's not what I'm talking about right now, to get involved and to be aware. I, I just think I just think it's your responsibility to do that. Switching gears, Madison, Wisconsin, going from a liberal city to a less than liberal state. What's, what's been the, the response there? It's, it's been interesting. Um, Madison is yeah, a very liberal state or a very liberal city. Um, you know, you've got the university, but in the bigger picture, it's like, you know, it's a very battleground state. It's a very geographically like polarizing state in and of itself, right? Like Dane County is the county that Madison is in and that Stoughton is in that I live in. Um, and then you've got like the Milwaukee area. Um, and like, all these pressures, like, you know, these external pressures push onto the city. And much like you see in a lot of other big cities, like the police and the like sheriffs and the National Guard, a lot of them come from these smaller rural towns and want to be, you know, cops in the big city and get the cool toys and all that fun stuff. And, you know, want to be serious professional cops. And so those first few nights of protest, it was probably was uh, coming on two weeks ago now. Um, on state street which is known as like you know it's just full of like hippies and people that just you know fun loving and like you know people smoke weed and stuff on the street very casually and there's always like homeless people playing music and just very very nice simple place um it quickly turned into like the battleground of protesters so the street goes up to the capitol um and so at the capitol were all the protests and friday or saturday night they decided that they didn't want people there anymore. They put the curfews in and all that. And so they started pushing them back down State Street, trying to flush them out into the side streets and back onto campus and just off of State Street. And that was where all the tear gas came in. And it was just got really suddenly violent. And I think a lot of us from this area, there was huge protests eight years ago about like collective bargaining and much more like civil issues much more like politically based issues and like human right issues and so you know we were used to those kind of protests where you you know so sitting at the capitol and marching around and you know get signed and rallies and like speeches and it was you know well one it was very white because that's what the state is and it was just very like calm and peaceful and um those kinds of things and this was very different people weren't used to riot gear and to tear gas and all that and so it was it was a new experience and I wasn't there but you know I watched it play out on local news and you could tell it was so sudden because you know the cameraman and the reporter had never experienced anything like it and we're trying to figure out what to do and you know the video was shaky and it was like really hard kind of to watch because they had never filmed a major protest like you watch like CNN or ABC and like those cameramen are getting shot by rubber bullets and still, you know, filming everything. And, you know, this guy is probably a year or two older than us and is trying to film this crazy event. And it was, it was very startling, I think, for a lot of people. I know Matt Hanna um, and Jay, both, both of those two uh, who were 
on 676 when the tear gassing in Philadelphia occurred. They said that, you know, especially for Matt, who wasn't aware of that discrimination from the police, that, that brutality um, that has been being preached about. And Jay, who has been aware of it and has experienced it um, personally, right? Uh, Matt said that, you know, for him, it was a very eye-opening experience. Like he had to deal with that coming out of nowhere for no reason where he was up against a fence and, you know, he was screaming at the cops, you know, or the police, why, why are you, you know, throwing tear gas at us? Why are you, you know, we have no place to go. We're trying to get off the expressway. We can't go anywhere. You know, we're clambering over a fence right now. And, you know, police on the other side of the fence uh, made him look down the muzzle of his rifle. And for him, that was an eye-opening you know, experience. It's the, the entire, the entire protest uh, now a week and a half ago. He said that he, he kind of understood to a degree uh, that what the black community felt, you know, um, and, and how they felt like, you know, they couldn't go and do something with that safely, without, without feeling safe, without feeling protective. They always, you know, everything they did, you know, has some level of discomfort to it because um, of the police. And he said, I had to experience that for one afternoon. And he says, that makes me even more emblazoned to continue this because these other individuals are having to experience this day in and day out. Yeah. And he says, I can't imagine how, you know, that must just feel, right? So I, but I imagine that it's the same thing across the country. I, did, I was not aware, and I don't, maybe it just hasn't shown up in my feed, that these same things were happening um, in Madison, right? I didn't know the protests were, were, were to the scale they are in Madison. For whatever reason, the state of Wisconsin just is invisible for my field since my Milwaukee Bucks fandom. It's just, it just isn't there, yeah. which is unfortunate but this is i'm glad that you know, you're keying us into this but seeing you know hearing that reporters young reporters are being you know subjected to this and are having a hard time reporting on it which is showing to me like you said that there's not this kind of experience of it's a very it's a very new thing to have the police be combative against yeah. seemingly peaceful protesters it's it's a new experience it's something in philadelphia yeah. that they had experienced right that the police were uh, combative and you know, could get aggravated and aggressive at times. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, for some, it was a it was a news flash. Like Matt, it was a news flash for for Jay. She said, and Don remembers this we, when we talked to her. She said she knew it was coming. She's like, yeah. I just had a feeling that it was coming. It was like it was like she felt it for like the entire time. Hannah was Hannah for Hannah. Yeah. And he said it came out of nowhere. And Jay said the same thing. Like she said, yeah, it came out of nowhere. There wasn't a reason, but she said the whole time that we, you know, the moment no. we got on the expressway and she saw the police there, she's like, she knows it's gonna happen. It's yeah. gonna happen. And you know, 15, 20 minutes later, then it happened. Yeah. Right. So that just that just shows to me that Madison, they're not they're not aware of of this of this issue of these issues. Yeah. That's kind of their their oh shit moment, their eye opening mm -hmm. moment. Um, well, and another like interesting piece was in my town. Like we have like 12,000 people, probably a little bit more now since the last, you know, census, whatever. Um, but this one, one kid, he's probably, I think two years younger than me. Uh, he, like somebody I, you know, know in passing just from school and whatnot, but he um, sat out at the corner of an intersection with a sign that said like, I can't breathe and like had, you know, his mask and like a flag and everything and just trying to draw some attention to it. And, you know, he's, he's a big white guy, like big kid probably six two like stocky dude and i think you know that caught people's attention like this big white guy standing on the corner holding up a sign and you know put it on facebook that he was out there and just there were pictures of him and people were generally supportive and you know then a few of his friends came and by the end of the day there were like six of them on the corner and people had bought him like dinner since they were out there 
and pretty much every day since he's been somewhere in town just holding up the sign uh and over the weekend last weekend they had like this huge gathering and brought in speakers and you know people are talking and march around town and it's this like realization that it's happening in every like corner of the country and that it's not just like angry black people like it has been in the past it's like white people that are also fed up and want to do more and feel bad that they haven't and i think you know this like it's not just my town that has seen these small ones it's a lot of towns and it's acknowledging that this movement is slightly different because it's getting people out of their houses in a time when we're supposed to stay home and trying to catch attention and showing that there are some things worth risking safety for and i think that's been like a big message yeah, it took for uh, the stoppage of basically the entire world for white people to pay attention. And I think that speaks volumes to all of this. And, you know, sports will come back definitely. And then life will go back to quote unquote normal, um, however normal it's going to get. But I don't think it will. Well, that, that's, I don't, what, I don't, I, that's, that's seeing, what I mean. I mean, quote new, unquote, right. Yeah, it's, a new, a, it's a new normal. It has yeah. to be a new normal. But I like everything's going to go back to what, like a new normal or something. Um but I think this will, people will continue to educate themselves. Hopefully people will continue to educate themselves. I know that at least me and Ziggy will um, continue to try and have these conversations as much as we can. So I, I feel, I feel like you know, at this point we have to. Yeah. Simple as that. Uh, we have a duty. Don't, I'm not going to make anything about the call of it, but Wisco, your high school that you went to, I'm going to assume it was, it was a majority white high school. White. Yeah, that like 90 something percent. Sure. I think that'd be a fair, a, a fair estimate, even though I've never been there. Um, just looking at you and, and that's about it. I'm looking through your eyes. So my, my question is, did you, Matt Hanna and I talked about this on uh, our episode, kind of the implicit racism that was kind of instilled in us in North, in North Pittsburgh um, high schools and in elementary schools and just kind of the fact that everything was whitewashed and you weren't really made aware of the plights of, you know, what the African-Americans have really been through. There's a portrayal of the white savior um, or the white man as a savior. And that left you coming out of high school with, you know, uh, subconscious or unconscious racism and prejudices that you didn't, that you weren't even aware of, that you weren't aware of until you got to college and until you were exposed to a, you know, a wider demographic than just, um, you know, upper middle class white people. Right. And once you were exposed to that and you were called out upon it, then, you know, you had moments where like, I didn't even know that my brain defaulted to, to thinking like that. And you had to actively, you know, have self-awareness to realize where those prejudices came from and then actively try to change them, which is a process that, you know, takes time to, to come back from, um, or to, or to figure out, but obviously shouldn't have been there in the first place. And it's not like it was Matt and I's choice. It was something that we didn't realize was even in us until after. Is that something that I mean, you felt it all. You felt it was a thing in rural yeah. Wisconsin. Yeah, I think. I mean, like, and I don't think it's anything to like celebrate or brag about. But like, I think my mom and I like personally did a you know tried to do a better job of staying aware of certain things and being informed and you know not letting that build up so much so that I was so unaware of like certain privileges and things. Um, I think though, being in such a white area you know there are still certain things that you don't think about um i think a lot i tried to be you know aware of things i was saying and things people were saying um one of the things though that i noticed the most was that i would never say a lot of things 
um, and like people that I chose to surround myself like most primarily with wouldn't say those types of things, but like people, you know, like on that like second level of friends and like tangential interactions are more willing to say certain things and that I kind of never felt like it was necessary to say something to them or to like, you know, push back on that. And that was one of the things that I'm still having to work on is, you know, you kind of let people say what they're going to say because they're going to say it and you don't really like, you know, get in people's way and you just let them do what they're going to do. And, you know, you know that you're not doing it and maybe people that you're close and really comfortable with, you'll say something, but you know, you're not going to say something to like that to people that you're not super close with. And I think that's a big problem that a lot of people, that a lot of white people from small areas have is, you know, you go to the diner and the 60 year old white people are, saying bad things and you know reading the paper and all that and you just kind of hear it and you're like you wince but there's nothing you're gonna do and I think to a certain extent there's nothing you can do because you're not gonna walk up to the six-year-old lady eating her breakfast and cause a scene Um, but that's one of those things that you just get comfortable with is letting them say certain things and being a bystander which I think as we've you know seen and acknowledged in this new movement that that's really just not acceptable so I think that's the biggest like takeaway that I've had kind of reflecting the last couple of weeks is something that I've missed. And I've seen it from other guys on the team that come from smaller areas is that we're all kind of comfortable in like private and in like in our own settings of being a little more loose because we know it's not as like we're not being super serious and like certain things get passed by that shouldn't have. I think that that's something um, – I mean there's a stark difference between – you know, making a, 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 I'm going to say touchy as the word of choice here, a touchy joke or a touchy remark, you know, regarding some sort of potentially sensitive or offensive, um, you know, material uh, with a close group of friends. And it is very, you know, obvious that it's, it's in jest and it's not serious. But even in those situations, there, there's got to be a line. There has to be a line. And it's on those, you know, that friend group or the people that are around that individual to call them out and speak up. And I think that that is starting to happen. Um, Especially after this movie, I know with people you know, back home where I am with, especially family, uh, we've kind of been speaking up and holding each other accountable. I think that that's great. And, I, and I'm not trying to say that that's not great. But to go on to what you said is, is I feel like it's how do you speak up to, you know, and shake that kind of complacency when it's somebody else that's saying this stuff? You know what I mean? I mean, if I tie it back to the, 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 the buffoon at Temple. It was spewing some students hate how do, I mean you can speak up behind um, you know uh, your phone and say something right but how how do you get to that point where you can just speak up against that to somebody you don't even know maybe that's a self-confidence thing but maybe yeah. it's maybe it's also just part of what you were surrounded by growing up is that well nobody else really spoke up about it you know yeah. so the, you know I, it doesn't it just feels weird for me to speak up about it now yeah. Is that part of the system? Is a systemic problem? Yeah. Well, and I think the thing is that I'm not like I'm still not good at that, and I don't, you know, have a lot of strategies or like information to share. And I think the way that I, to a certain extent, reason it out to make myself feel good, and you know, I think that's something that we have to acknowledge that we do, you know, subconsciously. But is that I spend more time like educating myself, and you know, my like my goals in life are to work on like policy issues and specifically in like education and like criminal justice issues. And so while I may not be able to 
stand up and say something to every person or spend time on Facebook fighting with people. You know, I'm spending the time in school and now in grad school, like learning more about these issues and trying to get like a job where I can help make change happen so that we can get rid of these systems. And certain people have certain roles in life. And I think that's what we're seeing is like, there's a lot of people who are really good at organizing, right? And organizing these protests and rallying people and mobilizing. And, uh, you know, for a lot of time, I've struggled with like, it's that seems like the most outward way to like do good and to make changes. You know, you, you lead the fight and you do that. But I've realized like, one, it's not my place to be the leader on these issues that I find important because I don't represent those people. But what I can do is use my abilities and such to make change through the way that I'm good at. And so I think that's, you know, I got away a bit from the whole discussing with people, but like it's finding ways to do good even when you can't speak up straight to the people that are putting out negative rhetoric. That's tough. I don't even know if I have a response to that. It's, I, but I mean, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, in, in you know, layman's terms, yes, I agree. You're absolutely correct. And I think you put it very nicely, an idea that, you know, for those that have been silent, those that have, you know, kind of succumbed to complacency, you know, throughout their lives, that's something that I think that, that they need to realize is that, you know, the way somebody responds to this and the way somebody acts and the actions somebody can take are different dependent on the person. You know, not every single person needs to be at the protest, right? They, everybody has their own concerns and their reasoning, but that doesn't mean that they're not doing anything. Not every person needs to be extremely involved with social media, but that doesn't mean that they're not doing anything. Not every person needs to donate a large portion of money. That doesn't mean that they're not doing anything. You know, even something as simple as educating yourself and shaking your own implicit racism is a monumental step. Right. And I think as long as you're not, when I say staying silent, that doesn't mean not speaking up necessarily, but that means, you know, not being blind to the situation. Staying silent is refusing to acknowledge the existence of these issues and refusing to, you know, increase your own self awareness. Right. And it starts with that for a lot of people is increasing their own self awareness. And there's always something that you can do. And we've highlighted a lot of things, a lot of options that can be done and that have been being done. Jeez, my English is really lacking me right now. But you know what I mean. Are happening, have been done, currently going on. I uh, appreciate, appreciate, pre, uh, I might be going to try. I was going to say appreciate it, thesaurus, but sometimes, sometimes it doesn't. Um, Just busting your chops. Fall out. I'd love some chops right now. Anywho. Yeah. And one thing I'll add on that before getting at is like <clears throat> something that I've been trying to talk with the team about and people about is, you know, like after the protest died down and, you know, people are like, you know, Twitter feeds going back to normal and things like that. And, you know, the way that I stress to people that they do more is that you do it in the in your job and that you, you don't have to get outside of your normal routine to make some sort of difference. You know, you make people of color in your workplace feel comfortable. You make people in class feel comfortable. You make people on the team feel comfortable. You know, you you ask you know people if they're willing to like share experiences and you allow people to take center stage when it's their time and you think about the effects of things that you're doing maybe on people that aren't the intended audience and i think you know it all comes back to this idea of equity and just getting people the resources they need to be successful and like a lot of the team is engineers and so you know if you're engineering something or you're building a, a building or a road or 
setting I, up. I can tell you're not you're not an engineer major. No, like <laughs> lots of you know, just like things like that and how it affects the communities that it's going into and just like being aware is a big step that everyone can take regardless of like the other factors that play in. I think that that has to start now. Yeah. Right. Is you can't when once this stuff dies down, whatever it does, you know, because it will eventually. We don't know when. I, you know, obviously you, you want this to stay prominent for as long as possible, as long as necessary. But once it inevitably does die down, you can't you can't shake what happened. You can't just act like that was a fleeting moment, right? Is to use this time that you have now, use the resources that are now being made so readily available to adjust your habits, right? And you, like you said perfectly. Even in your daily your daily life, you don't need to change anything about your daily life. Just change kind of how go you go about your daily life, right? If if it, if it makes sense to change aspects of it to be more inclusive, to be more aware. Anyway, I know that you have a I don't want to say a tour of Madison, Wisconsin coming up because I don't, I don't know what you would call it an, uh, an excursion to, yeah, to Madison and stuff. Field trip. It's going field. on a field trip. He's going field on a trip. field trip to the big city. Going on horseback. All right. Well, make sure make sure you bring you get the horse carrots. Anyway, uh, we like to thank you again, Brandon Wisco. Always Lamity. my pleasure. I was Stop holding in. I was, I was holding in like the who's Brandon? Who's Brandon? I you know I was going back and forth because I don't think we introduced him as Wisco at all. So I kind of introduced him as Brandon Lamberty because that is his government name as far as I'm aware. And uh, I think it was obvious when he was talking. So get off my case, Don. We can talk <laughs> about this after. That's okay. Thanks again for hopping on. I think we made some very good points. Continue to further the discussion. And have a safe trip to Madison if it's like a nine-day horseback ride or, or whatever you guys got to do. Yeah. yeah, it's a long walk. All right, thanks again for listening. Signing off, this is Ziggy. This is Donnie. And that's... And this is Brandon. This is Mr. Mr. Brandon. Simple as that. Stay safe out there.